welcome to the Learning Can't Wait podcast, an iTutor production. At iTutor, our vision is to ensure every child has access to education, regardless of circumstance. Each episode, we will be joined by pathfinders within and around the education space who are bringing about transformational change on behalf of deserving students. I am your host, Haley Spiravauer. Welcome back, everybody, to today's episode. I am so delighted to introduce you today, Abbas Manji, the co-founder and chief academic officer of Kidum. Welcome, Abbas. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Haley. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I have to say, you know, you know, and I know that we've been meaning to make this episode happen for a long time. And thankfully, we have come to the table and are recording what I think will be a really important piece of a national dialogue that's happening today about ed tech. So thank you for joining me this morning. No problem. I'm really looking forward to it. And honestly, I am so thankful for the opportunity. Thanks again. So Abbas, every superhero has a phenomenal origin story. What is Abbas's, the co-founder, chief academic officer of Kidum's origin story? Wow. It, it, laced in that is the implication that I'm a superhero. So Indeed. I appreciate your kind words. <laughs> yeah, I, I can give you my origin story. I can tie it back to just sort of my roots. So I'm a child of immigrants. My parents came from Pakistan. My dad moved to the Chicagoland area and brought my mom over. And there I was growing up in, you know, it wasn't exactly a great neighborhood. It wasn't a tough neighborhood. It was something in between, but we grow up in a low, low, low sec- socioeconomic state. And I reacted to that by being a straight A student. And by the time I got to college, I knew that, you know, I just wanted to make a lot of money and make sure that I had opportunities that I didn't have as a young person. And realize that as a, you know, in college, I realized that in the investment banking world, you actually make a lot more money than a computer engineer, which is what I was studying to be. And I changed majors and all my friends made fun of me for it. And I moved to New York and got a job in the world of mergers and acquisitions. And as soon as I got there, I realized, wow, I have made a terrible mistake. Um, I had a mini existential It was like, Oh my God, what am I doing? Like, you know, I studied finance in college and, and it was great. Like the, the, theor- the theoretical was fun, but at the end of the day, you're working 80 to 90 hours a week, crunching numbers to help some company absorb another company. And what are you doing it for? Well, you're doing it so that you get shareholder returns. And that really charges people up. It didn't charge me up. And so I quickly realized that as a 20 something year old, I needed to figure out what fulfills me so that I can get up every day and do the work that I need to do. And I realized that, you know, through some soul searching as a 20 something year old, whatever that means, right? I realized that maybe, maybe teaching is for me. So I got into to the, uh, the world of education through this program called Teach for America, which, you know, uh, as you know, is quite popular. And it's, it's a great way for young people to get into the world of education. I was a career changer. And I got placed in an alternative high school serving overage, undercredited youth, which means that I was teaching 17 to 22 year olds, 17 to 21 year olds as a 24 year old, which was a fantastic experience. But ultimately, as you know, with the New York City Department of Ed, given staffing issues and given just sort of like how things work, I ended up becoming the math department chair in my first year of, of teaching. 
which is kind of insane. That's an, that's an opportunity if I've ever heard one. Yeah, I mean, it's an opportunity, but coming out of the Teach for America program, you know, that summer institute, I would say I was definitely underprepared. And, you know, my principal, he was a first year principal. It was a first year school. We hadn't even opened our doors yet. And we had this challenge of taking in students who were coming from, you know, backgrounds where you know, they were transient, maybe coming out of shelter homes, formerly incarcerated. Maybe they had children of their own. Maybe they were holding jobs to support their own families. These young people were disserviced by the system and they were coming to this school to get, move on with their lives, get skilled and get that high school diploma. And honestly, I, Haley, I was uh, <laughs> overwhelmed would be an understatement. And, and, and in doing this work, I realized if my students aren't going to come every day to class, but they're motivated, we got to figure out a way to make learning work for them. And so I built this crazy spreadsheet channeling my investment banking powers and put together a website that connected this spreadsheet. And the spreadsheet basically was a Google sheet. This is before Google Classroom. And it allowed my students to track themselves online, figure out exactly what they needed to get done, watch videos of myself that I had recorded of, you know, lessons, and also find activities that I had aligned to those lessons from Khan Academy, CK12, IXL, just so that they could access another way of learning the materials in case the way I had taught it and recorded it didn't make sense for them. So this was basically like we're saying in 2022, you know, synchronous and asynchronous and, you know, virtual learning and blended learning. No one was talking about these things in 2009, but we had set up the system for my students and I had over an 80% passing rate on the New York State Regents exam after my first year, which is for students who had passed, who had never, who had failed the exam three, four times before, that was phenomenal. And we turned this into, I actually turned this into a program and flash forward six more years, you know, I'm talking to my co-founder who was just, who had just bootstrapped this math game on the iPad. And we're looking around the room and realizing no one has connected curriculum instruction and assessment in a unified way. And not every teacher can be like a boss and just plow through 80 hours a week because they, were, they came from the investment banking world. In fact, the best teachers need more time to connect with their students. And so Kidam was born in 2015 to help solve that. That was a perfect weaving of the Abbas origin story and the Kidam origin story, which was <clears throat> excuse me, definitely on my list to talk about as well. And I think what you're naming here, in addition to your own historical timeline in education and around education, is you're naming as well the biggest, some of the biggest transitions that have happened in education regarding technology, the invention, the integration, the utilization of tools. And you're also highlighting what Kidam refers to as the great migration. Can you deep, yes. dig a little deeper into that notion and describe what this event was and the impact it had on schools across the country, please? Yeah. And I think, Haley, you and I were probably, I mean, you and I were definitely teaching through this general migration to digital platforms in education, right? Like as we were teaching, blended learning started becoming a buzzword. And then there was flipped classroom and there was all these things. But why did these things even rapidly get pushed into the classroom? Well, I think it starts with the fact that most teachers would argue that their core curriculum was not good enough or certainly did not provide enough materials to help them differentiate for their students, right? So we had our core curriculum, but then we were also supplementing. And the best way to supplement was to go online, right? Co copy paste your state standard or common core standard into Google, and then you land in a bunch of different places, all of which, as we find out later, um, were unvetted and 
not rigorous and not and essentially like you know when you when you end up on teachers pay teachers not everything that's shiny is gold in there and so you really have to commit extra hours of your day which you already didn't have to figure out what's working what's good and what's going to fit the needs of my kids so you know as this like we're seeing this like huge shift in education technology coming into the world of classrooms right pre 2020 we're also seeing teachers asking for more they're demanding for better quality materials and so kidum is sitting at the sort of at the center of the general migration to digital and the appetite for higher quality instruction materials which we're calling hqim these days right so we're sitting at the at the center of these two because kidum happens to now digitize high quality core curriculum in a platform that's designed to help teachers unpack understand and utilize curriculum and the reason why we even exist today i would argue is because we're we're at this place where teachers are just overwhelmed right like the pandemic has destroyed uh it destroyed our everything right like we are tired and we were already overworked and underpaid but now the pandemic created the conditions where we had to basically we signed up for everything that was free and edtech companies including kinem put everything up for free because that's what you need to do in a pandemic However, now we need to figure out how to call these things down because there there's too much noise and we have a lot of kids in front of us who are asking us for their attention. We do not want to put teachers in a place where they are administratively burdened in front of students who are just hungry for that connection, right? And isn't that why Haley why, why did you get into teaching? Yeah, well, and you're telling you're talking about this whole situation with the creation of digital resources and i have an anecdote that relates to why i got into teaching which is i'm actually preparing for for a talk on youth with disabilities and if edtech is serving youth with disabilities right now and i myself was a youth with disabilities and what i had to do growing up was i actually had to have multiple sets of textbooks because it was too heavy for me to carry textbooks through my high school it hurt my joints which is like part of my condition and so i said to my yesterday as we were preparing some slides for this talk wow how different would my high school experience have been if textbooks were digital right cuz yeah. the accommodation my school made for me was to allow me to carry two sets of textbooks but it, had there been an option when i was growing up for digital curriculum that would have benefited me as a student with disabilities but that connects to the other thing which made me want to be a teacher which was the other types of accommodations i received were a heck of a lot of empathy from the teachers around me who cared <laughs> about me as a learner but really cared about me as a person i went through a lot while i was in high school and nobody batted an eye when i had to miss half a day because i was in the city for a doctor's appointment so i knew that human connection in the classroom was what made me want to be there So to answer your question, long-winded way, <laughs> I really felt like I wanted to be able to be that teacher for the children that were going to be in my classroom was create a space where they could be their authentic selves. Same, right? And some of my best moments with my students were when I could connect what was going on in their lives and their lives were, you know, not ex not exactly cookie-cutter like some of the traditional schools, right? They had a lot of stuff going on. and if i was able to connect what was going on in their lives to some kind of content i taught high school algebra so you know for, for me it was all about connecting making mathematical connections to their daily lives if i could do that that's when you see the the sort of light bulb go off in the aha moment but you you can't you can't do that in a scalable way as a teacher if you're bogged down in paperwork if you're bogged down spending most of your hours offline copy pasting materials from one place to another 
and essentially being a data wizard. You don't, teachers should not be data wizards. We should not be spending committing one day to doing data day, quote unquote, right? Data day should be easy. Data day should be every day. Every and the day. technology should make it such that we are utilizing data to make, you know, in, incredibly intentional choices in the classroom on when we call on students and when we talk to students and when we frame questions to our students and a whole class environment, group setting, individual setting. And what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is that we've, we're starting to come to a head right? Because we have this one sort of factor, which is there's a lack of high quality core materials. And so teachers have been supplementing. And the basic easiest way to supplement has been to go online, find tools, sign up for tools, and then create stations in your classroom and send students to those stations when they either require more help or require enrichment, right? The second thing is now there's such a burst of ed, ed tech in the marketplace because of the pandemic. There's just so much noise and we can't figure out what to use. And then the third thing, of course, is that there is actually now through the HQIM movement, there are actually players in the marketplace and from core curriculum that aren't the big three, right? That aren't HMH, McGraw, Savas or Pearson. There are actually authors and publishers out there producing high quality instructional materials that are comprehensive rigorous and have embedded supports for students with special needs, embedded supports for English language learners, et cetera, et cetera. All the stuff that you would go out to go find and commit hours to finding online. A lot of these HIQM, right, are coming embedded with these supports. And it's, it, look, it's no surprise that, you know, a, a couple of weeks ago on EdWeek, there was a, a, a piece that came out saying that the number of EdTech tools that school districts are using has almost tripled. And that's a problem, right? Teachers are overwhelmed. They need districts are actively looking to call down. What we're seeing is sort of this merger happening between curriculum and technology. And I would argue, from my vantage point, of course, I'm biased. I work at Kidum, but I would argue that the technology needs to support or be aligned with the core curriculum curriculum that has been adopted and implemented, because that is what the teacher is spending most of their time on in the day to day. There's a center at the heart. There's a heart at the center of all you're talking about here, which is the teacher and their exhaustion and their capacity. Yes. So I, I want to talk about a, a little bit how teachers today, what you would say would be a good framework for culling the tools that teachers are using so that they can, or schools are using in order to prioritize what gives you the biggest bang for your buck. Yeah, great question. There's a piece on Education Next called the Supplemental Curriculum Bazaar, and it basically outlines all the materials that are out there. And they basically come to the conclusion that a lot of the free stuff that's out there, alignment is weak, the assessments fall short, and the materials are not cognitively demanding. I would argue in order to figure out as a school district, as a school, or as a teacher, what do I need? Well, first, start with the basics. What is your core curriculum? Is it good enough? What, what is, how does it rate on edreports.org? Edreports.org is an independent auditor of all curricula in the marketplace. And they actually produce an annual report every year, the results of which are quite sad every year. It's just so sad that, you know, it's shocking. I think we're it's so much shocking yeah. how low some of these, these very highly well-adopted curricula are rated. Yes, yes. It, it's shocking because... It's not like high quality uh, materials are more expensive 
than, than their counterparts. That is not true. High quality curriculum is the same, costs the same amount per student as some of these other curricula that are in adoption and are rated low. I think the best place for a teacher to start is go look at your textbooks, go look at your PDFs, go look at that brand name and punch that brand name into edreports.org. They have a incredibly rigorous criteria for review. There are three gateways that they audit for all curricula. I, I can tell you just as a mathematics teacher, the first gateway is focus and coherence. The second gateway is rigor and mathematical practices. And the third is usability, right? And if you're an ELA teacher, I think it's like text quality is the first gateway. Strategy and purpose is the second gateway. And structural supports is the third gateway. And I got, I got them all. I'm actually proud of myself. Well done. Yeah. Here I am. <laughs> Googling like for the, the three gateways. I didn't even need to, didn't need to look it up. Yeah, so Can I ask a question though? Because Ed Reports has had some controversy in the past. Right. There has been a debate about whether or not we should be embracing Ed Reports. Why do you think there's been such controversy? And do you think Ed Reports has moved past the debate that occurred a couple of years back? So I think there should always be a debate on auditors in the marketplace. The fact of the matter is, there was no auditor before Ed Reports. So If you're a teacher right now, think back to when you were in the classroom as a student. Could you have looked up how rigorous your textbook was that the teacher was using in front of you? I don't think so. These, yeah, right? Like these major publishers have a massive grip on school districts and they have an amazing renewal team that has an awesome superpower of renewing for five years and coming back five years later and renewing for five more years. And Unfortunately, I think we're ignoring the results, right? We are so overly focused on teacher quality, but I would argue, and studies prove, you know, there was a write-up in the, in the 74 million a couple of years back that basically outlined that new studies suggest that the choice of curriculum and textbooks can make a big difference for students, even more of a difference than the quality of a teacher. But we are so focused on teacher quality that we're forgetting, like, what, are, what is actually the content in front of them, right? And because there's so much content in front of teachers, we just think, okay, as long as we can figure out how to make a great teacher, they can go do the work of deciphering content, which I think is completely backwards. you got to give teachers a head start with great content and then coach them on classroom management, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So going back to your question, Haley, right? First thing is, look at the core curriculum. Is it... Is it offering you enough supports uh, to prevent you from going out and sourcing other material? If it's, if it's not giving you enough materials, that's the first place to start. I guarantee most of the problems are going to be solved there. The second question is, okay, great. What about differentiation opportunities? What about engagement? What about getting students to create, you know, build something, get, get, get their creative juices going? That's great. There are tons of tools out there that merge core curriculum right? And the topics in the core curriculum align with opportunities to engage, right? Like, you know, Kidum has interactives built into it. There's Desmos that has interactives built into it. You know, Nuzella has some amazing tech sets, right? But these are, again, like level two, right? Like we're talking, once you've got your, whole, your high quality instructional materials on point, then you could start thinking about, okay, how am I going to pick and choose some of these additional sort of resources? to make my classroom a more engaging experience. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I'm going to go back to the uh, like original kind of response you had when I asked about the controversy surrounding Ed reports, which I think is a, a really cool one and speaks to the type of critique we should be having. Debate is natural and it is healthy, right? Like we want to be able to have yeah. a dialogue about what it is we're using if we really value it. Only having one opinion leaves no space for diversity of thought, which is important. And that's important in our classrooms. It's important as we talk about tools. And yet we still need to have some sort of system that allows us to rate the quality of the materials we're putting in front of kids. So I'm here for yeah. that. I think that's an important part of the discussion. Yes. And I think teachers need to be more involved in that discussion because they are the implementers of said curriculum. Right. So uh, I think you mentioned controversy on ed reports. There was a controversy last year, I think right around this time, about uh, a very popular reading program that got basically got a failure, uh, a failing mark on ed reports. It was Fountas and Pinnell, right? Or, or yeah, I think it was Fountas and Pinnell. And they got basically a failing rating. And it happens to be one of the most popular reading programs across the u.s right? oh it's everywhere and, and, yeah and major cities high adoption rates there yeah so, so you remember this right so yeah. like how, how did the publisher react you remember i don't <laughs> so they were like well you know the criteria isn't aligned with you know our units of study and how we how we actually think about the science of reading and you know there was they got into this battle that basically highlighted that we are still in 2022 still talking about the science of reading, although there are not many curricula out there that have truly adopted and implemented the science of reading, right? Like we're still talking battleground between balanced literacy and science of reading. The science of reading has came out 20, 30 years ago and, and the science hasn't changed, right? And there are very popular programs that are demonstrating excellent results based on the science of reading, right? I'm talking about, you know, core knowledge, EL education, wit and wisdom, right? Like these are all great ELA programs that are based on the science of reading. And then you have, you know, your, let's just say the big three that are still pushing these programs. And they, again, they have excellent sales professionals. They have excellent renewal teams and they are just so good at getting districts to commit to five more years. So there's a concern that is, you know, widespread in pretty much every issue that comes up in education that some schools have the ability to access the most current, the most recent, and by have the ability, I more mean are well-funded, well-resourced, have a lot more agency in, in just debating some of these issues and kind of adopting quickly and implementing quickly due to financial capacity. So how much variation are you seeing across schools right now? And what are some of the ways that you see schools being creative in their adoption of high-quality instructional materials? So that's a great question, Haley. So I think the first and most important thing to name is that these conversations cannot happen without teachers being in the room. If you are a teacher listening right now, you gotta figure out who's on your adoption committee, right? Who, who are the people who are looking at the textbook publishers and the authors and what is their review criteria, right? And how are they actually reviewing these materials? And who are, is there a teacher committee? Do you wanna be on that teacher committee? Because this is basically going to set you up for the next five to six years, right? Like, so for example, Tennessee has a six-year adoption term. That means, uh, and, and Tennessee is a centralized adoption state, right? So that means every single district in Tennessee next year, I think 2023, yes, is going to adopt math, 
So that means that every single district needs to figure out and vet what is the math curricula that best reflects their pedagogical um, structure and needs and philosophy and align that with how that matches and mirrors and offers mirrors and windows to their students, right? That's, that's pretty, there's a, there's a lot writing on this. So as a teacher, you have to figure out what is that process? What are the brands and the logos? And how do you figure out if you can influence that, right? And if, if there's a budgetary issue, again, I, I cannot emphasize, emphasize this enough, High quality materials are not more expensive than low quality materials. In fact, the high quality materials, many of them are OER, which stands for Open Educational Resource, and they are freely available. So guess what? You can actually go on to openupresources.org or illustrativemathematics.org or eleducation.org. You can go to these websites and I'm naming these brands because these brands consistently get all greens on ed reports. Um, you can go to their website. And if you're sorry, I'm leaving out, you know, some of the other content areas. M Math and ELA has gotten a lot of love. Open SciEd for science teachers, right? And that's a fantastic new curriculum. It was uh, authored using the Equip rubric, which you, if you haven't heard of that, it's one of the most rigorous uh, rubrics in the market used to design curriculum. And what you should do is go online to those websites go download a unit or two and literally compare and contrast the unit that you have in front of you that your school district has adopted and the unit that these high quality materials offer to your classroom. And you'll be able to see the difference through a quick skin. I guarantee as a former math teacher, I wish I had opened up math or illustrative mathematics in front of me. I wrote my, my curriculum all six years that I taught because I just didn't trust anything that was out there. Of course, that was back then. And I spent a lot of time writing, drafting, building technology to make sure that my students can access these materials synchronously and asynchronously. And that is why I almost burned out. Well, we don't want that for teachers, right? Like, <laughs> exactly. we are learning very quickly that burnt out teachers make for, you know, a what, what is also a debate right now, teacher shortages in pockets of the country, yes. geographically di diverse uh, teacher shortages. And so at this point, as much as we care about the mental health of our students, we also have to care about the mental health of our teachers. And so anything that makes yes. it easier is good. Yes. Yes. And so that's where I think a little like, bit. Thumbs up. Yeah, thumbs I think up. that's, yeah, no, I mean, I, it's not an oversimplification because I mean, if you look at like, I'm talking, we, at Kidham, we talk to districts all the time. I'm visiting all our customers, right? Teach, teacher, the teacher shortage problem, while not equitably, you know, true across the board, there are pockets of this country that have classrooms that are just totally empty, waiting to be staffed. There are staffing agencies propping up, seeing this as a market opportunity to go build a business. Unfortunately, you know, that's the private sector responding to public sector needs. And that's just what happens in this country. For the, those folks who are in the classroom today, right, they are seeing an incredible amount of stress. They are seeing students who still, you know, they missed... <laughs> so much time being socialized and learning how to talk, right? So it's not just an academic problem in front of them anymore. It's a social problem and it's real. And, you know, there's also a debate about social emotional learning. And I, I will just say that, you know, a great classroom environment and culture is one of the founding, you know, one of the foundations of social emotional learning. And I think to get to that place, you have to call all these crazy, you know, one-off tools that you put onto your tool belt because now they're heavy and 
the supplemental curriculum flourishing via tech is what's holding some of these teachers down. Today, there is high quality instructional material. There are There is high quality core curriculum available that could help teachers get more time back in their day instead of finding, sourcing, edit, like creating lesson plans. And they're already digitized. And that is why, that, that is exactly why Kidum is alive today, thriving, is because we are hell-bent on a mission to basically offer the on, only the best curriculum inside a single unified platform that offers flexibility and simplicity to teachers because that's what they deserve. So, Abbas, we are nearing the end of our time together, and you have kind of, there's a sports reference here, like prepared me for a layup, I don't know, to ask the <laughs> final question that I often ask guests, which is, what advice would you give a teacher starting their career? Yeah, that's a, you know, it's <laughs> a tough question. I, I would say, you know, teaching, especially your first year, is going to be like a roller coaster. And you probably, in your training, got a lot of great, you, you learned a lot about the theoretic, uh, the, theor the theory behind teaching, right? And you learned about, you know, pedagogy of the oppressed, and you probably read a lot of Dewey. And that's great stuff, but that's basically holding a, so a, a beverage as you're about to ride a roller coaster. What you need to be given is a seatbelt, because this thing is going to take off. And so if you are a teacher starting your career, you're going to spend all of your career in teaching focused on curriculum. So you might as well start researching now, what is the best curriculum out there for my grade, for my subject? Because that work is gonna do you a lot good and it's gonna give you that time to revisit the theoretical when you actually have the time to do it later in your career. So look for the seatbelt and buckle it right away. Buckle up. <laughs> buckle up, buckle up. Abbas, this has been an absolute pleasure talking to you about a topic that I think is really, really important. And I know that a lot of folks are thinking about, especially as the school year is now underway, except for in New York City, which starts officially tomorrow. We're recording this at the beginning tomorrow. of November. So we're almost full in the United States with a, yeah. start, a start, but really relevant conversation. I'm grateful for you sharing your thoughts with, with all of us today. Thank you for being here. Haley, thank you so much for having me here. And, and just thank you so much for the passion that you exude. It's just uh, truly an honor to have talked to you today. Well, the feeling is quite mutual, Abbas. Appreciate you being here. And thank you to all who tuned in to listen today. Thanks for listening to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and share this episode. Be the first to know when we have a new episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have a suggestion for an episode, email us at podcast at itutor.com. This episode has been brought to you by itutor.com, your online solution for sourcing highly qualified educators. Join districts all around the nation that use iTutor to connect with thousands of licensed educators who fulfill both core and supplemental instructional needs. Choose iTutor.com. Online education when learning can't wait. Now back to this episode.